In the songs we sing and the sermons we endure, the smiles we flash and the small talk that lingers while others leave, God of love, remind us again that love is not a point, but the point of our lives. That while faith and hope have a place in our stories, our first place belongs to the call of love on our lives as lovers. When the hands of the homeless, friendless, joyless, and last knock on our doors in search of a room, God of our femmes, may we learn the language of love and always make room for you. We light a candle tonight for love, the essence of the divine and the aim of our lives. When we read St. John's words that remind us that you so loved the world that you gave your only child up for it, we remember that at the center of our faith is this conviction that people are worth dying for. May we embody this truth, say yes to love's call, and be the place where love is born next in the world. Together we say, the light of love shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot put it out. Hi everyone, my name is Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table and we are in the middle of Advent. Well, actually sort of toward the end of Advent. And we've been working through Scott Erickson's devotional book on honest Advent. So, so good, so honest. It's been real and gritty and I've heard from a lot of you of how much it's meant to you. Matt kicked off our series a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about truth and grace. And he talked about the idea that it's grace that covers us so that we can actually be uncovered. And that it's through truth and grace that we are always seen and always safe. And last week he talked about joy. And the reality of joy is being that we can experience joy only when we acknowledge that life is short and fragile and that we have the moment that's in front of us. And that those moments are for us to savor. Well, as I have been sitting in this sacred story, it's hit me a little differently this year. And when I think of the sacred story of Advent, I think about pregnancy and family, birth, God with us, incarnation. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about the pregnancy thing, and part, in part that's because I am surrounded by a lot of pregnant people right now. A lot of you know my daughter Kate, and she's married to Matt's younger brother Jordan, and they are expecting their first baby in June. But hey, they aren't the only ones, and it's not my story to tell, so I'm not going to say much more. But let me just give you a heads up. When we gather in the summer, we'll have added at least seven new members to this family, and they'll all be babies. And that is really, really good news. But here's the thing about pregnancy and birth. Total reminder, total reminder of the gift of life and the giver of life. But there's this level of messiness, uncertainty, and discomfort on the journey. One minute, you're jumping up and down with joy over the news that you're expecting, and the next, your head might be hanging over a toilet, vomiting. The nausea, the morning sickness, the extreme tiredness, it's all part of it. I actually had a friend who throughout her whole pregnancy experienced nausea, and every time she'd brush her teeth, she said, yeah, I'd throw up just a little bit in my mouth. So this is not something for the faint of heart. 
a woman's body goes through a whole lot of stuff. I still remember the first 12 weeks of my three pregnancies, and I remember the first year with Sam that I would be walking around those hospital floors as a hospital social worker, carrying my little bag of saltines so that I wouldn't throw up in between seeing people. But there is, there's uncertainty and there's fear of miscarriage and questioning every little ache and pain. I've experienced it, I've witnessed it, I've walked alongside people in it. So there's that part of the journey that we don't talk about a lot. The other piece I've been thinking about when I think about all the pregnancy is I think about Mary, her piece in this, her story. The young, poor Palestinian girl chosen by God to carry the coming Messiah. And it's not just the super wonder, the supernatural wonder of it all. There's more to it. It's actually about the get down and dirty human piece of it as well. And that's the piece we don't talk about too much. And I think that's the piece that makes the sacredness of the story even more sacred. I think that's what makes our stories more sacred. When we think about Mary and what she probably went through physically as she stepped into this divine calling, this first century Israel and Mary would have been around a lot of pregnant people and infants, births. She knew the realities and the risks. And sometimes I think we do this sort of romanticized reading of Mary and when we romanticize sort of the gestation period, it ignores all the complexities of pregnancy in ancient in the ancient world. I imagine Mary's pregnant body continuing with the rhythms of a fishing community while experiencing all those bodily changes, the exhaustion, the nausea, maybe even morning sickness. When you think about her doing what she probably had to do, cleaning and slicing and preparing, and I imagine the strain on her back as she carried water from the well, or I imagine the swelling of her feet as she harvested their food. I try to picture and think of sweat dripping from her brow as she gathered grain and kneaded the bread in the evening. And then I imagine when the morning sickness that she might have been experienced collided with the spiritual euphoria of the angelic announcement. And we all think about this Annunciation story, right? is this beautiful account of an angel's visit to Mary, one that's been told in song and, and um, painted on canvases. But it's too easy for the complexity, for the reality of the story to be lost when we focus on the punchline that Mary offered herself up to God. Hey, she was troubled, she pondered a bit, but ultimately she consented. She consented to burying the Son of God. But I think it's when we really look, when we actually enter the story, that we see so much more. The reality of the human condition and all the unease and discomfort, that's what makes the story so sacred. So we're in the Annunciation story in the book of Luke. Matt touched on it last week, and then he went on to talk about Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary's cousin Elizabeth. I'm going to look at it just a little bit differently tonight. And Luke begins his chapter with that angel Gabriel visiting Zechariah and foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. But here we are, and we're in Luke 1, 26. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am still a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. A virgin gets pregnant. And we're far removed from the story, because to us it looks like a magical twist on a fairy tale. But only for Mary, the marginalized girl from Nazareth, poor and alone with a baffling voice in her ear, it must have felt like the ultimate undoing for her, the undoing of everything she had hoped, every future plan she had, everything she understood about the world, about how God worked, all blown apart. In that one moment, her world turned upside down. And suddenly, everything looked a whole lot different. Because this pregnancy thing and the incarnation stuff, it's a messy thing. But here's what I love about the story. This is a story that blends divine love with humanity. She receives this angelic announcement, and at the same time, I imagine she had this uneasy feeling of what's ahead. She'd have to go through the physical details of the divine calling. As Scott Erickson said, that's the rub of divine proclamation, the announcement that you're going to have to grow. And here's from Scott in his book, Honest Advent. The process of growth is always uneasy because growth never comes through ease. It comes through stretching and expanding of one's capacity to push ahead. And I think we tend to move past her perplexed and pondering response, past her unease. And don't you think that's true of us? We like to move past our discomfort and unease in our own stories. But I think we lose something when we do that. Luke and 1, 29 says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Over the years, translators have made this a lot easier on us because they've translated the Greek word by using words like troubled and perplexed or confused. But the Greek word, diatarthi, means wholly disturbed. And I think that packs a lot more punch. It makes sense that the very next thing that the angel says to her is, don't be afraid. From the angels, like unexpected greeting to the incredible promise of conceiving the holy child of God, I'd say Mary had a lot to be uneasy about. She could have been, she would have been familiar with the prophets and the long-awaited Messiah, but I think it's pretty safe to say 
Yeah, she wasn't prepared in any way for this moment, for this visit. And for her to try to understand what was going on was an impossible task. But beyond the reality of pregnancy and birth, there'd be conversations and confrontations for her in the world that she lived in. Confrontations that could be dangerous to her. But the angel Gabriel goes on to give her more details about the plan. And I love her response. How can this be? He tells her about how the Holy Spirit is going to cover her, overshadow her, and that she will bear a child that's holy. I kind of wonder if that he actually answered her question. Because I'm wondering if she was really asking, like, how is this going to go for me? What's going to happen? And there's no doubt that Mary was wholly disturbed. Because when the angel left, I doubt that she fell into bed and went to sleep and had a peaceful night. Because this is so much more than just an announcement. It's a call story. And can't you relate? Like Mary, we feel uncomfortable. We feel uneasy when God calls us into something that's different than we had thought or planned. And we ask that same question, how can this be? Why, God? Because it's more than we can understand. So often, we don't feel equipped to go where God's calling us to go. It's usually somewhere new. It's usually somewhere uncomfortable. In those words of Gabriel, nothing is impossible with God. Yeah, that doesn't really cut it in the gritty of life. This is an uneasy place that Mary finds herself. And I actually think the question of the hour is, why yes? Why did Mary say yes? Why does a woman vomiting through a pregnancy say yes to doing it again? Why do we say yes to that move that'll completely disrupt our lives? Why do we say yes to a job that causes us hurt and fulfillment all at the same time? And why do we say yes to going back to school when nothing about it is practical or convenient? Why do we see, say yes to needing help? Why do we see yes when sometimes it just hurts and it's hard? Why did Mary say yes? There's a simple answer, almost too simple. And she says, yes for love. And that begs the question, and I quote Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? And what I'd say is, love's got everything to do with it. Mary's yes is a yes to love. And the yes didn't come because the angel explained everything and promised that, hey, it's going to all be good with your family and your community. Huge risk here for her to say yes. But maybe her yes had a lot to do with the greeting she was disturbed and troubled by. This greeting that she pondered and had to reckon with. When the angel came, he came with words of love. Words of love that actually shaped her identity, that let her know who she was, that she was the beloved of God. And the invitation she got, it came with love. God is with you. And Mary says yes, because her faith was in and out of that love. She says yes to love. 
Scott Erickson says this, it's for love that you have been moved from what is known to what is unknown. It's for love that you've been moved from your comfortable perch so you can be enlarged by a different perspective. It's for love that you've been broken open so a larger capacity of faith, hope, and love can be built inside of you for love. It's because you are loved. And the simple truth always goes back to this. We love because God loved us first. And that love stretches us and it grows us in ways beyond ourselves. It always does. So maybe the question for us tonight, what does saying yes to love look like for you, for me? What's God's call on your life in this season and this moment? Because it isn't always what we expect or even what we hope for. It's often wholly disturbing and unbelievable and impractical, inconvenient, and sometimes it's even countercultural. When we embody divine love, when we say yes to that love, there's often unease. There's often uncertainty and discomfort. It's often wholly disturbing for all of us. And that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because the truth is that I think when we're uncomfortable, when we feel uneasy, that that's a sign that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. I like that phrase, embodied love. I like it a lot. Because I think embodied love, what it asks us, it asks us to sacrifice. And it asks us to sacrifice not just our body, but our minds and our hearts and our souls. That's the ask on us. And we see it clearly in pregnancy. That's where I started tonight. We can see it in carrying that baby through pregnancy. We can see it in the birthing. We can see it in caring for an infant. We see it in all the places that we're called to. I think so much about Nicole Fogarty, who's a member of this community, and the embodied love that she has and she gives to those kids over at Fraser Friends. I was thinking about you, Nicole, because months and months ago, pre-COVID, you were over at my house for a meeting for women at the table, and you came straight from work. And you had to run upstairs and change because your T-shirt was all full of vomit, a little bit of blood, maybe some snot, some other things. And you just laughed it off. I've also been with you when you've been in tears because the love you have for those kids is so deep and so great and so sacrificial and you've been in tears because those kids have hard lives and hard things happen to them. Embodied love. I see it in someone new to the community, Kim, who over the years have taken care of and fostered a couple of boys and they've now become her forever family. Not an easy task. It's sacrificial. That's embodied love. I see embodied love in the hard conversations that people are willing to have. I think back to when my Annie was a senior in high school and going through eating disorder issues. In two-week period of time, I had four different people from different areas of our life come to me out of love to have hard conversations about things that they had witnessed with Annie and some of her eating habits. Embodied love so grateful for those voices. I see it for the people who stand on the front lines in the protests, 
those fighting for justice, those physically putting their bodies in between other people embody love. And most clearly during this pandemic, we've seen it in our healthcare providers, literally losing their lives, literally sacrificing their hearts, their minds, they're exhausted as they care for people and watch people die. I think about our own Ben and Emily Trappe and the sacrifice they've made as Ben's been on the front line as a doctor and the time that they've had to separate during her pregnancy and the sacrifice that they've made out of love. We've all heard a lot of those stories, but there's one that's really stuck with me, one that I've watched over and over again, and I want to share that with you right now. Take a look. Coronavirus has now surged past 9 million cases in the U.S., with at least six states breaking daily records for new cases. And in many remote areas, hospitals are at a breaking point. Our Gabe Gutierrez got exclusive access inside a COVID ICU in a growing hotspot. I have to tell you, some of what you're about to see is hard to take. St. Vincent Healthcare in Billings, Montana, wasn't always among the front lines in the war against COVID. It is now. I'm a good nurse. And the nurses <clears throat> that I work with are good nurses, but we are broken. Joey Trawick says he's personally held the hands of 23 of his patients who have died after the first one passed without him. And I came back to the room at one point and she had passed by herself. And I thought, I'm never going to let that happen again. If I have to stay late after work, if it means coming in on my day off, I'm, they're not going to pass alone on my unit. Again, none of them. Embodied love. It matters. That's what it means to bring the kingdom to earth. It's when we answer hard calls and we operate out of that divine love. You know, people have asked me recently, in the last couple of years, like, why should I have a kid? Why should I have a baby? What would you say? And I always go back to the one thing, the one thing that has changed me and made me a different person is that that caring, that self-sacrificial love for a child has changed me in ways beyond anything that I could have ever have thought, anything I could have ever imagined. It's the setting aside of self in a way with this little baby, this little person um, that I've experienced with no one else. It's that embodied love. We all have stories. We all have calls on our life. And I think this season of Advent is a great time to look at that I think one of the lost realities is that the incarnation is embodied love. Because our God came to the earth as a baby, poor, naked, naked, vulnerable. It wasn't pretty and it wasn't easy. And as with all births, was messy, painful, chaotic. But God came out of love, for love, to love, to call us to love. That's what this Christmas time reminds us of, is that our call comes out of love, to be love, to love God, to love self, to love neighbor. And maybe this is the Christmas that we pause and take a look 
And we answer yes. We answer yes. Because there is no other way in this world today other than to wake up every morning, to breathe deeply in of that Holy Spirit, and to pray for strength to do whatever hard and holy work that God calls us to. Life's not ultimately about what we want or what we plan. It's about the yes. A yes and the weight that it carries. I'll leave you with this, a blessing from Scott Erickson. May the unease of your stretching and expanding be the promise of divine love growing in you a new life of unforeseen possibilities. Hey friends, I love you. Go in peace. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Debbie, for that message. Thank you for reminding us once again um, that love is center, that life is a gift and love is the point, and that's what we're all here to be about. That's what Jesus was about. In fact, on the night before Jesus died, he was with his best friends, the ones that he loved dearly, not just through abstract speech, but through embodied solidarity. And he was with them up until the very end where they had one last meal. They gathered around the table and he grabbed the bread that was in the middle of the table. And he looked at his friends and he said, guys, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you. In the aftermath of the noise that's about to go down, when I am long gone, eat this and remember me. In the same manner, he grabbed the cup and he filled it with wine. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink from this cup, remember me. Remember the forgiveness of all wrongs. And so that's what we do here at the table. Every week we have a lot of different moving pieces. There's not a ton of consistency, but one of the most consistent center points of our entire gathering together is the bread and it is the wine. It is the chance to remember that we are here to have these bodies that break, the blood that pours out for the betterment of the world around us. We are here to be fed and we're here to feed. And so we do that here. Uh, if you are with somebody in your room and you have bread or crackers and you have some wine or water, whatever the thing may be, now would be an appropriate time to turn to them and say to them what I will say to you who are sitting alone tonight. This is the body of Christ and it is broken just for you. This is the blood of Christ and it is shed just for you. Will you join me as we say the Lord's Prayer together? Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's worship.